stuff, and they're going to have this black velvet uh, 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 cloth, and they're going to lay it on the counter, and they're going to bring out the diamond earrings and the, and the gold earrings and the necklaces and all those wonderful things that you're going to buy for your wife because you love her so much and you want her to know that you love her so much that you just will go to all lengths to communicate that to her. <laughs> Colossians 3.19, men, come on. <laughs> and they're going to set that against that black velvet. And that diamond is just going to jump out at you. You're, you're going to be amazed. It's going to sparkle. It's going to shimmer. The light's going to hit. It's going to reflect. The black of that velvet causes that diamond to pop. This is where we are right now. Historically speaking, doctrinally speaking, it's incredibly dark. And against that darkness, we have the diamond of Jesus Christ that's going to be presented to us. And it's going to pop out to us in a significant way. This dark background exemplifies the wonder of Jesus Christ, and we ought to be as mesmerized by it as you guys will be next week when you look at those things on that black velvet background. So, so what is the message? What's happening here? We, we understand that there's a system in place where there's sacrifices. Indeed, these very shepherds to whom this message is communicated were pri- primarily tending flocks that were used in the sacrificial system. They were the ones providing the lambs and, and, the, and the animals for the sacrifices that were being offered in the temple on a regular and consistent basis. So that's, that's a unique thing to think about in the context of what is taking place here. So as we look at verse 10, and we look at verse 11, we find this. The angel says something to them. Do not be afraid. Now, of course, if an angel shows up in the middle of the night in the field with a bunch of sheep, you tend to be afraid, I'm assuming. But they are told to not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news. So there's good news. They are in desperate need of good news. We all want to hear good news. I bring you something very specific. I'm going to communicate to you something that's so good, so wonderful, so spectacular, that it's going to fill you with joy, that it's going to cause joy, that the consequence of the good news is joy. Now, we refer to this as the season of joy. We talk about joy But I think oftentimes that joy is attached to whether or not we get what we want for Christmas, whether we have the things that we perhaps desire. But this joy is designed to address a spiritual problem that permeates all of mankind. This good news is of great joy, and it's for all the people. And so now all of a sudden, those shadowy forms and symbols, those types, those images of something yet to come are going to be applicable for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And in verse 11, we're told that there, this news is connected to a person. It's just not a, a, a change of condition. It's not that they're going to now have you know, uh, you know, things that are better at work or more days off or, you know, a better benefit program, uh, a better 401k. No, they're, this is all connected to a person. This is connected, of course, to Jesus Christ. And the angel communicates for today in the city of David, 
consistent with all the prophecies that have gone before. In the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now let's think about this. We have good news of great joy that's being communicated to Jew and Gentile alike. So what is the news? The news is that there is a Savior. And this Savior is a specific person. The Savior is Christ the Lord, which communicates that he is capable of doing something that they are in desperate need of that he is capable of saving. Matthew one twenty one tells us, and he would save his people from their sins. That's his task, that's his duty, that's his obligation. He is a savior. So the joy, the good news, the joy is tied to the fact that he is a savior. Now what do saviors do? They save you from something. They save you from sin. We understand from the name that's given to him, Christ the Lord, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. And that this person is one capable of conferring full salvation. That he is able to fully do what he has been charged with. That he will complete the task that is given. And so we understand then from verses 10 and verse 11 that the good news is connected to the resolution of a spiritual problem. The good news is in fulfillment of that which is promised even in the name. Go back to Matthew chapter 1, if you will, with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 21. A familiar passage, but it bears repeating. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And so verse 21 tells us, again, you call his name Jesus, and he's going to do something. He's going to save his people from their sins. So the message that's communicated in Luke chapter 2 is consistent with what was told in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, of the purpose of this person named Jesus Christ. And so the good news is attendant with a particular person. And our joy, then, is attached to this particular person. Again, it's just not the message itself. It's the object of the message that is going to bring us great joy. He is a Savior. He is the promised one. He is God with us. All that had been promised is now going to become a reality. And so as a consequence of this, it ought to stir up within us a reflection on the fact that in Christ we ought to be people who are joyful. Indeed, we ought to be joyful people. So, in the context of looking at this from the standpoint of the good news, let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. And let's look at Isaiah chapter 40 in terms of of why this news is so good and why it should cause us great joy. We understand that the news is that Christ the Lord has come. 
He is a savior. We know from Matthew 21 that he's going to save his people from their sins. These are very specific things. So the good news is all tied into the work and person of Jesus Christ. What's significant to me is that upon hearing the good news, these shepherds who are the lowest of the low, who are at the bottom of that caste system, many of them considered them, the society considered them to be thieves, to be scallywags, scoundrels. They were filthy dirty all the time. They smelled like sheep. They worked with the sheep. They were where the sheep were all the time. We were over in Israel a few years ago, and we went to these fields where they would tend sheep back in the day, and these shepherds would live in caves, and they were low, and they would have fires in there. And even, to, even when we were there, the walls were still black from the soot and the smoke. And that's how they lived. That's how they lived. They were, they were people who were outcasts. They were people who were, who were um, uh, the, the, the dregs of society. And what's significant today is that when we talk about good news, we want good news that's going to change our personal circumstances. These guys continued to be shepherds. They continued to live in the context of where they were in that structured society. The good news, though, was for them that there was a Savior that was going to resolve a very significant problem related to their sin, not their circumstances. Not their circumstances. You and I often want our circumstances to be changed, and we see salvation in that context, but we see here that salvation does not necessarily change their circumstances from a temporal standpoint, but from an eternal one. From an eternal one. And that is indeed good news. And so Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, this is a beautiful passage. I could spend a long time here. You know I can do that. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So so when we begin to unpackage, what I want to do now is to look at the nature and the content of the good news. And this is the heavenly perspective of the good news. So so in the context of Luke chapter 2, we have the temporal perspective of the communication. There's good news. This is going to be good news that's of great joy. The Savior is born. But in Isaiah 40, we have the heavenly perspective of the content of the good news. This is really quite beautiful. And so in Isaiah, we see we have this greater insight as to why this good news is a source of great joy. The heavenly view, if you will. Last week in Ecclesiastes, we had the heavenly view of God's control of time. In Revelation chapter 6, we have, God's, we have the view of the gospel age, if you will, from the throne room, God's perspective of all those things. And now in Isaiah 40, we have the heavenly perspective of the content of the good news. Why is it such good news? What's the big deal? It's interesting that it's said here that the gospel for Isaiah begins in this chapter in verse 1. And we have these words. Pay attention to this. Look what Isaiah writes here. Comfort, comfort, oh comfort, my people. 
What a beautiful thought this is when we begin to unpackage what this means for us. As in Luke chapter 2, this message is delivered at a time of darkness and despair. So a command is given for their comfort. That is, the gospel is to be proclaimed. So Isaiah uses these words. A proclamation is made comfort, comfort. It's, it's, it's double impactful because it's repeated twice. A plural imperative. The repetition of the words comfort indicates an emotional intensity of the exhortation and urgent need of the recipients to be comforted, to hear the news, to understand that there is a resolution, that the problem has been resolved. And so God is saying, comfort, be comforted. It says, says your God here in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is an interesting phrase. The idea behind it is that it comes with a sense that it will keep on comforting. Keep saying these things that I'm about to tell you. Don't ever stop talking about the good news. Always be in a mode of proclaiming comfort. Comfort. The idea, too, here with these words, it's hard to express it. I think adequately from the standpoint of the grammar and the structure of the passage. But there is an emotional intensity to this in the original language that that we don't quite pick up in our translation. It's as if I would say to grab you by the shoulders and say, be comforted. Why, Why aren't you comforted? Be comforted, people. Says God. Take comfort. Know that I am God and I have provided a way. And Jesus Christ is ultimately the message here. Take comfort. The angels say, the angel would say, this is good news of great joy. He is indeed doing the very same thing that Isaiah, he is going to comfort them with the message. And so for you and me, we ought to be arrested by this immediately. We ought to step out of our leisurely comfort in the context of a temporal setting and step into the spiritual realm where things are incredibly desperate in our natural state and be reminded of the fact that we need to hear these words of comfort all the time. It is indeed the message of Christmas. To be comforted by God himself is significant. Verse 1 says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. And keep on repeating it. Keep saying these things. Don't ever stop talking about the gospel. Verse 2, it says, Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. So the imagery that Isaiah is using here in Isaiah 40, and again, this is, this is the beginning of the gospel. The Puritan theologian John Trapp would say that this is a very hive of heavenly honey. And so in verse 2, we have the idea of the, 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 the picture of being comforted by a message. That's significant, just like in Luke, right? So we have that parallel. And so here we have this in verse 2, Speak kindly to Jerusalem. So what, what are we talking about there? Well, it's significant in the terms of, of the implications of 
the meaning of the message. It means to speak to the heart. Speak to the heart. Seek to persuade and invite to respond. Cheer, cheer her up. Do it, do it with, a, with a, an abundance of urgency. The idea being here is to respond to the offer of comfort, to respond to the God's love, to, to challenge people from the standpoint of their heart to understand that God is speaking words of comfort that indeed communicate and bring true comfort, as in Luke chapter 2. To be of good cheer. Why? Well, let's consider why. The urge to the, the, the message to communicate is to be comforted, to speak from the heart to the heart, to persuade, and call out to her, tell her, proclaim to her that her warfare has ended. Oh, my goodness. This is so beautiful. What does this mean? Isaiah is saying to the people, tell her, tell her that the yoke of the law is gone, that the harsh schoolmaster has been sent packing, has been taken away by Christ, been replaced by Christ, the law in the hand of Christ, no longer in the hand of Moses. Christ has fulfilled it all. Her warfare, her harsh task has ended with the law because it's all been consumed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. This is the wonder of the good news. This is why it causes great joy. The people had labored under the law. The people in the context of where Luke finds them in chapter 2 are laboring under the law. We understand what's going on from the standpoint of all the things that the Pharisees are doing with the law and how they've added to it and made it onerous. So much so that it was indeed burdensome. It was a harsh taskmaster. But no, Christ comes, God says, to comfort the people with the message. Speak to them with your heart. Persuade them. Push them. Conjole them. Tell them. Plead with them. Let them be reminded that the warfare has ended. The law has been fulfilled. Christ has come. Christ has come. And it's permanent. And it's forever. Consider this, what was spoken of here in Isaiah chapter 40. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has been temporarily suspended. Is that what it says? No. Her warfare has ended. Now, now let's not forget the names that we've been talking about. Luke chapter 2, Christ, Savior, Messiah, all of these things are communicated. Those words mean things. This person who came and was proclaimed to have come in Luke chapter 2 was doing something that would bring about the end of the warfare. It was necessary that it happened that way, of course. So this is a permanent removal. It's not temporary. It doesn't say that, oh, by the way, so speak, you know what, here's some words of comfort. I want to comfort you today. Comfort, be comforted. Um, I'm going to speak to you passionately from my heart about it. Your, your warfare has kind of ended, but you've still got some skin in the game. It's still partly going to be about you at the end of the day. It's going to be about your, your future righteousness, your final salvation. It's going to be about the fact that you've got to keep earning your righteousness. No, friends. 
the good news of great joy is that I don't have to do anymore. It's over. It's done. It's finished. And Isaiah communicates this right here in the context of God's greatness and his splendor and his majesty. Take comfort. Be comforted. Be, remind them. Tell them that it has ended. It has ended. Now, look what happens here. It doesn't just say that the condition has been ended. It also says that her iniquity has been removed. This is beautiful. So, so Isaiah, communicating this glorious message, the good news, we're breaking down, remember, we're breaking down the content of the good news. Why is it good news? Why should we care? Does God want us to care? Yeah, because our comfort comes from understanding the message. So God, instructing Isaiah, communicates this important message, comfort them with this message, and remind them of these important doctrinal theological facts about what the comfort is all about, what the message of the good news is. Why is the gospel so important? For one, you're no longer under the law. That's been taken away in the context of Jesus' fulfillment of it for you. You stand in his perfect obedience. He was perfectly obedient for you because you could never be. All right? Now, that resolves that issue. But there's another issue that has to be rectified, and that is the iniquity of your sin. The fact that you're going to be before a thrice holy God who cannot be in the presence of sin. And so not only does, is the warfare ended in the context of your inability to fulfill the law and do the things that are pleasing to God in that context, you are then cleansed. Your iniquity has been removed. Not just half, not just a third, not three quarters, but all of it. Completely, permanently, forever. That should cause great joy. Isaiah's use of the passive voice means that the punishment of our iniquity has been accepted as satisfied. That is, God has been satisfied in his justice. That which was offered, that is, Christ, was and is and always will be accepted by God. That's why in Luke... Keep in mind the message. Luke, the angel, says something that's important. Who is the messenger communicating on behalf of? God. What does the angel say? Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, of which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, capital S, who is Christ the Lord. And so, God's message is that I have sent to you one that is capable of fully fulfilling everything that is required. And as a consequence of that, you and I can be in right relationship because everything has been taken away. Everything. There's nothing more to add to it. Which is a wonderful thing for us. It's interesting, too, that the grammatical structure used by Isaiah here in in this passage in verse 2 can only be found elsewhere in the Bible, in Leviticus, with regard to God's acceptance of the Levitical blood sacrifices. That's remarkable. 
And so when, when we're looking at the language here in terms of the permanency and efficacy of it, we see that grammatically that, that this, la- this language is only used in the context of the permanent removal, the, the, the expiation, if you will, of God's wrath from the standpoint of a sacrifice, the atonement. So the penalty of iniquity is accepted as paid off. It's paid by the servant of the Lord. Beautiful. Now, look at this. Look what else he says. So you're being comforted. I hope you're being comforted. If, if you're not being comforted, you're going to be comforted until you're comforted. You're being spoken to with great passion, speak from the heart, calling out. The warfare has ended. The law has been fulfilled. The iniquity has been removed. Look what it says next, that she has received of the Lord's hand. Oh, my. This is so good. This phrase, has received of the Lord's hand, the central reality of the sacrifices guaranteeing their efficacy in the context of of Christ's sacrifice was that it was from the Lord's hand and not a man's hand. God provided. God did this. This wasn't through some other ritual or system that's created by man, but this is directly from God himself. Which means it's permanent. Which means it's perfect. Which means it can't be altered or changed. Which means when it was given, it was given to fulfill all that was required. Now, now how extensive is it? How, how wonderful is all of this? Well, look what it says at the end of verse 2. That her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is really quite significant. This speaks to the abounding nature of God's grace in payment for all our sins. His grace is so magnificent so comprehensive, so wonderful, that it overabounds and is more than adequate to cover absolutely anything and everything forever. Abounding grace. This is the imagery that's being conveyed here. So God replies to all of our sins with a double pardon is the picture. The pardon of grace, which means It's ample, it's generous, it's abundant, and in large measure. It's superabundant, it's it's overabundant, it flows over and seeps into every nook and cranny. There's so much of it. It's more than you could ever need. You can't outsend God's grace. So, what happens here? What are we talking about, though? What, what, what is the issue at play here at the end of verse 2? Well, it says double for all her what? Mistakes? Failures? Shame? No, sins. That's significant. Sin's a big word for Isaiah. We know that from Isaiah chapter 6. We know because of his treatment of it elsewhere within 
the book. And so what we find here then is that God's grace is a comprehensive work of dealing with sin in the context of all that is is in terms of guilt and iniquity. It's, It's fully covered. All the sins, all aspects, shades, variations, expressions, concepts, all of it are covered completely. We find this in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, where we have that amazing picture of Isaiah's salvation. You can go back and read that. We won't take the time this morning. But what happens here is this. The double pardon, the abounding nature of God's grace, the comprehensive removal of the iniquity speaks to the, the, the overwhelming nature of the regeneration that takes place with regard to a person's new creation in Christ Jesus. It takes care of the inner reality of the depraved nature and the shortcomings of mankind that they have by nature. This all has to be dealt with, of course, right? You, you can't continue to remain in a context where there's a relationship where these things linger and that nature is not changed. And so the comprehensive nature of the good news is that we take comfort in the fact that when God saves us, he resolves all of it and removes from us that nature which is is part and parcel of the sins of which we're speaking. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3 that we are to put on the new man, that we're clothed in that new righteous clothing that is of Jesus Christ. And the message here is that God has more than abundantly paid through his son the price which justice required. God covers our guilt out of free grace. He pays the wages of sin, which is death. He brings peace to those with whom he is well pleased through Jesus Christ. So is that good news? Should should that cause great joy? You know, John made an important point this morning in Sunday school about praying and and the motivation for prayer being the idea that as a recipient of God's grace, I ought to be fervently praying that God would extend that to other people too. Why would I not want that for them? To pray earnestly for that, to pray passionately for that, to communicate with God, God save them like you saved me. Give, me, give them the comfort that you've given me. Create in them a new heart like you did in me. Forgive them their sins like you have mine. Cover them completely in your double, abounding, unbelievable, pardoning grace like you did for me. So do you see, friends, do you see why it's good news? Do you see why the angel in Luke would say, that this is good news of great joy. Can we have any greater joy than that? Can we have any greater joy than knowing that God has fully forgiven us, pardoned us, saved us, created a new heart within us? Are you comforted by that message? We are the recipients of an abounding, wonderful grace of God. Comfort, comfort, He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the God-man. He has a divine human name, Jesus Christ. 
You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is indeed the anointed one. That is the message of the angel to the shepherds. Hear me, friends. Hear me, please, and take great comfort. Christ is the better Adam who makes a way back to Eden, the better ark who rescued God's people from the flood of judgment, the better high priest who makes continuous intercession for us, the better Israel who obeyed the law of God perfectly and secures its blessings, the better temple in whom God's people worship, the lamb who who dies for us and takes away the sins of the world. Take comfort, take comfort. Hear me, I say, hear me, is what Isaiah is saying. This child that we speak of at this season is God, and he is with God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And by this man, all things were created, and all things are held together, and all things are governed. He is the Alpha and Omega, the author and finisher of our faith. He is our warrior shepherd, the risen king, the conqueror of death, the reigning savior, the controller of history, and in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Take comfort, be comforted. He is the faithful friend, the physician who heals you, the hope of the hopeless, the defender of the righteous, the bright and morning star, the lamb that stands as if slain, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. And he's coming back again. That's good news. That is good news. Does that cause you to have great joy? Or has your familiarity with the story bred contempt? I hope not. I hope not. In the face of all the, in the, in, in the, face of all the challenges that we have as, as a people, as a nation, individually, with our own battles with sin and our struggles with issues and problems and concerns and cares, we come to this passage today and we revel in the fact that we are the beneficiaries of this good news. And how good is that? How good is that? Take comfort, friends. Be joyful and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know, the angel proclaimed that that the message was for all people. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, well, what a great opportunity for you to ponder the message of the angel and to consider what what was communicated. The good news. Do you know the good news? You've heard the good news today. What will you do with it now? Will you just cast it aside? Do you think in some manner of speaking that you're going to be able to kind of finagle your way into heaven? You're going to communicate with God about the fact that you're a good person, that you've done nice things, that you attend church on Christmas and Easter, you, you are attentive to your animals and your pets, and you mow your lawn regularly and try to be nice to your neighbors. Or more perhaps this, you'll say, I went to church every Sunday. I, I, I read my Bible at times. I participated in things. The minute you begin to go down the path and recite the things that you have done, it's no longer good news. It's your news. It's not good news. And a lot of people do that. I've gone to far too many hospitals, sat next to too many people who want to talk to me about themselves. The good news is about Jesus Christ. 
And the message of the gospel is so very simple. Call upon his name and you shall be saved. And you abandon your self-righteousness and you look to Jesus Christ alone. And from that comes this great joy of which we speak. Joy in knowing that you're at peace with God through Jesus Christ and that your righteousness is not your own, but that of Christ alone. I trust that you will look to Jesus Christ and my prayer is that God will open your heart and your mind to see those things today. If you're here and you know Christ, well then guess what? You get to be happy for the rest of the day and the rest of your life. Great joy is yours. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've provided to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this good news. Thank you for the comfort. May we be comforted by it as we are exhorted to do by Isaiah based upon the promises that you have made, that you have, you have taken away the burden of the law, that Christ has fulfilled all those things. Thank you, Lord, for that, that you have assuaged and purged our guilt and our iniquity, that you have forgiven us our sins double over fully, that you've created within us a new heart. May we revel in the wonder of the good news of the Christmas message. And may we be people of joy. Forgive us for not being more joyful. Forgive us for not being more focused on the content of the good news. And may we be so inclined then to communicate this message to others and share with them the wonders of the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. Bless our time together in our fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for those who have helped prepare this day for us. Thank you for the food that you have so graciously provided to us this day. May you be well pleased with our fellowship and our time together. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.